0: Invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter two, preaching from verses twenty-two through thirty-nine of this passage. Find that on page twelve fifty-four. Look to the beginning of the chapter. You'll see that this is the gathering of all of the Jews around the uh, the Mediterranean world uh, to coming to celebrate the Passover and then the Pentecost. And the disciples are gathered there, and God pours out His holy Spirit upon them so that they speak in language of, the, of all of those Jews that are assembled there, so that they can hear the message of Jesus Christ, to hear about His life, of his teaching, his ministry, his death, resurrection and ascension, call to them to believe on Him. I'm going to pick up in verse 22 of Peter's sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, for seeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses." Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The scene opens on a battlefield. It's a battle that has come to its end. Bodies of the slain are strewn around Mount Gilboa. Among them are Jonathan and his two brothers, princes of Israel, sons of King Saul. And there you can see Saul as well, hard-pressed and wounded in the battle, despairing of life. In that despair, he asks his armor-bearer, who's still with him, to take out his sword and to kill him, because he's afraid of what the Philistines will do if they capture him alive. The armor-bearer will not do it. So Saul takes out his own sword and falls on it, killing himself, lest he fall into the hands of the enemy armor bearer does the same the Philistines swarm over the field and they find the bodies of Saul and his sons and they, they are celebrating their great victory they take the bodies, they desecrate them they take them home to one of their cities and they put them on display so that their people could also celebrate their victory over Israel And the final scene that we see here is something of a covert operation undertaken by the men of Jabesh Gilead. They travel through the dark of night and they, in a sense, rescue the bodies of Saul and his sons, taking them back so that they may be treated with proper care. They burn the bodies and bury the bones scene goes black. It's the end of 1 Samuel, but a crushing defeat for the nation of Israel, and there's a darkness that this scene communicates that I would liken to the end of season one of a miniseries, it leaves you wanting the beginning of season two. There has to be something more than this dark despair. Now, in all fairness, books of First and Second Samuel were originally one book, and so there was no division. Editors later divided it just for ease of, of, uh, of treating. But I did leave off my preaching from 1 Samuel in this crushing defeat, in the darkness of this scene, and I hope that I've reminded you of the despair of that scene that did indeed press upon us the longing for resolution a longing for deliverance, that the people of God would find salvation. All throughout First Samuel, I was directing your attention to the reality of salvation that was prefigured in David and of the narrative of his life and rise to power. Today, I'm taking up where I left off. It's the beginning of season two, and it begins kind of like the beginning of a new season. At the end of a cliffhanger and a reminder of that, it says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, dot, dot, dot. And the chapters then go on to tell about David. And today, I want to introduce 2 Samuel by telling you some reasons why I want to take up 2 Samuel I want to tell you the reasons why this is a significant book of the Bible, because it points you to Jesus. Jesus is the promised son of David, whose throne will endure forever. Jesus is the one greater than David that is to come. And I preach today, taking up the New Testament as it looks back to the old, to help you understand that Jesus is prefigured in the Old Testament. I want to go on to elaborate on that first and primary reason for preaching from 2 Samuel and give a couple of others, and then to show you from Acts chapter 2 why this is the case. So first and foremost, I've already said this, first and foremost, I'm drawn to this book because it is about Jesus, David is the central figure, but David stands as a foreshadowing of the promised king, the perfect king. So in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel, you'll see that there's a story that is told, the story of a king. We're told about his character, about his rule, his salvation, how the people longed for the coming of this king. In the way I describe it there, you might be thinking, say, say, I'm talking about David. And there's an element of truth there. Because there is a contrast in First Samuel between Saul, the people's choice. He got the people's choice award. And it didn't turn out too well. And God's choice, David, the man after God's own heart. But David himself was only a man. And he was not able to accomplish all that God promised. For the Lord's promise of deliverance had in mind not just national safety, but the deliverance of the souls of sinners. And there's no way that David could do that. He knew it. David knew that, yes, indeed, God had raised him up to be king, but He knew that he wasn't the Savior. In fact, he knew that there was going to be another king that would come after him. This is the promise that is made to him that I read of in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 earlier. The promise that of David's seed, of his descendants, that there would be a king on the throne of David forever. There is some, again, earthly accomplishments of that, especially in the context of that promise that there would be a son Solomon who would build a temple. God would love him and he would be a son to him. But even Solomon failed and Solomon died. But the covenant doesn't stop there. Of your seed, there will be a king forever. That king I will come back to in just a moment from Acts chapter 2. I also want to turn to this subject because our, our country is entering into an election year. In God's providence, First Samuel was in a similar time period, the last presidential election. And so we are discussing and we're debating, and we'll soon elect the next president of the United States. All around us, uh, uh, the, the, the news media and print and internet is full of discussions about leadership, about the policies that the different parties represent, about the directions that they each are, are suggesting for our country and solutions to the problems that they see. Whether you know it or not, this interest in the leadership of our country is really betraying and expressing a longing for the perfect leadership that only God can give. All of the solutions, all of the directions that are being put forward are going to fall flat on their face because there are human solutions to a problem that has spiritual origins fiscal policies and policies about marriage are really not the key issues they are the fruit of the heart of our own country and second samuel will draw our hearts and minds to the only savior of men and nations Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And in doing so, there will be ways in which his leadership and his provision will instruct us in the way our country ought to go. So there are lessons that, are, that may be learned because of that. With that in mind, then, I want you to turn, you to turn your attention to Acts chapter 2. This passage will help you to read and meditate on 2 Samuel in the full light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That way you can clearly see and understand Jesus as the one greater than David. You'll see Jesus as the one who has promised to come and save and defend and to direct his people. So as you look at at Acts chapter 2, uh, before I read it, I gave you just a very brief introduction. to the day of Pentecost, the gathering of Jews who had been scattered because of God's judgment. They come back to celebrate the Passover and the Pentecost. Since they'd been scattered, they'd adopted lots of different languages as well. And so as they are there, they hear... The disciples proclaiming the gospel in their own language. Because as Jesus ascended on high, he was given the gift of the spirit whom he dispensed on his church. So that they would be able to tell of what Jesus came to do, of his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Peter and the other disciples were eyewitnesses of that. And so in this sermon of Peter, he proclaims Jesus Christ. And it's fascinating the way he does that. He leans in to what the Old Testament says about these very days, the outpouring of the Spirit promised by the prophet Joel earlier in his sermon. And in this last section, he speaks of what David said about Jesus. And it's that aspect that I want to call your attention to today. Now, in verses twenty-two through twenty-four, where I started today, uh, there are these great foundational truths about Jesus Christ, and I'll just put a, a, a little highlight by them and invite you to go back and read these uh, these uh, definitions of who Jesus is. So there's the humanity of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God, fully man. His divinity is, is, is shown here, shown by his miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. Miracles that they were witnesses of. He describes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ by the determined counsel of God, but also at the responsibility of lawless hands the resurrection of jesus christ god has raised him up having loosed the pains of death and his ascension he is exalted to the right hand of god with these headings laid out then notice what peter does to expand this point of who jesus is he focuses his attention on the resurrection of jesus and his ascension and to do so he takes two different passages that David wrote: Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. We read uh, we sang Psalm 16 earlier. Later, we're going to sing Psalm 110. And in your Bibles, it may even be set out in a way that you can visually see. Here, David is quoting from Psalm 16, for instance. And here, David is quoting from Psalm 110. I want you to recognize what's happening here. That Peter is recognizing David as a prophet of God. That means that what David wrote was carried along by the Spirit of God. So that what he wrote was exactly what God wanted him to write. And what was it that he wrote about? Well, he wrote about the coming king. He wrote about what the Old Testament would call the Messiah. That's the Hebrew word, the Old Testament word for for the coming promised savior, the Messiah, the anointed one, literally is what that means. Translated into the New Testament is the word Christ. It means the same word. So when you hear Christ, you should think Messiah, the anointed one. And what does Peter say about the Messiah? Well, speaking from Psalm 16, Peter speaks about the Lord's holy one. Now that could refer to David in the sense that God had anointed David to be the king over Israel. But it can't be David by what he goes on to say. Because he goes on to say that the Lord would not leave his soul in Hades, or referring to death. Nor would he allow his Holy One to see corruption. In other words, his body would not decay. He's speaking of the resurrection here, the hope of of life after death. This has not happened in the Old Testament yet. This is David as the prophet of God foretelling of the promised resurrection that, that we've come to almost take for granted in this New Testament period. When you hear about the resurrection, we think, "Oh yeah, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead." well, that was had never been seen before in the Old Testament. It's proclaimed uh, by uh, by miracles and proclaimed here by the Word of God through David and so clearly, David is not speaking about himself at this point. he can't be and and It's almost humorous what David says. And the kids might recognize this. Here's what David says. Uh, Guess what? This isn't David because David died. He's buried. I I, I can take you to his graveside. You want to come with me? I, I can show you his tomb. It's not David that he's speaking about. So just who is this holy one of God that is preserved From the grave. Peter makes it plain. Speaking of David in verse 31. He says he foreseeing this. Spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. Again the Messiah. That his soul was not left in Hades. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus. God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. We have seen the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Seen him with our eyes. We have felt him with our hands. We testify to you what David proclaimed, that this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. Peter was one who was there when Jesus died. He could testify to that as well, that he truly died. But most importantly in this portion, he went to the empty tomb. The body was not there. He saw the resurrected Jesus. He heard what he said. He ate with him. Jesus invited them to touch his body so that they could give an eyewitness account about the truth of the resurrection. This Jesus, says Peter, this Jesus that that you all had heard and you knew about and was crucified, this Jesus is the son of David, Messiah. The point that, Jesus, that Peter is making is that the resurrection proves this point. It proves that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the one promised by David himself in Psalm 16. Hundreds of years ago, David proclaimed this. Hundreds of years. About an event that we could only imagine about, the resurrection from the dead. That God would send the Messiah as one of his sons. David links into is a thread that runs throughout all of scripture man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of god and is deserving of everlasting death because of that sin and yet the lord who is just and the lord who is merciful has sent a savior and that savior is jesus The very first promise of that is in the opening chapters of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3. And in various forms and in various ways, you catch this thread of Jesus Christ that runs through the Old Testament. That God would send his Messiah to save us from our sins. David said that this Messiah would be resurrected from from the grave. Proving that this Jesus is indeed the Messianic King, the one greater than David. The second psalm that Peter points out is Psalm 110. Not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he also ascended into heaven. And that ascension proves that Jesus is the Lord. He is the ruler and has authority over all things. And here, again, Peter quotes from Psalm 110. It may be set off in your Bible in italics or in some way. He says this from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And once more, David couldn't be speaking about himself. We know that because David did not ascend into the heavens. Instead, speaking again as a prophet, David foretold about a future figure coming of Jesus, the one that he calls a Lord. And David uh, says something here that the English language, when you hear it, you might miss. But in print, you'll, ne- you'll notice that they, uh, that they set off the two different titles for who Jesus or Peter or David is speaking about a lord and a lord the first lord capitalized referring to god the father he uses the covenant name jehovah or yahweh for uh, for uh, for this first person of the trinity the second lord is just given a capital l in small case ord and it's the uh, Hebrew word Adonai, which was another common word for for a title for, for God, and this refers to a different person, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So when you hear it that way, what Peter is speaking about is that the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, Jesus, the Son of God, sit at my right hand. And rule over all your enemies. This is what Jesus ascended to do. He ascended to heaven to be enthroned. To rule over all things until he comes again. Jesus is not just waiting. Twiddling his thumbs. Hoping for that day to to, to finally come. No, he is actively now enthroned and ruling over all things, bringing all things underneath his feet. Even until that last enemy death is conquered, he is reigning over all things. Peter says, this is what I proclaim to you today. And in an interesting way, just to complete uh, complete something of the circle here, It already referenced to the Old Testament promise of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. That's the third person of the Trinity here. (laughs) He said that in the first half of his sermon, and, and he references it here again when he says, I declare to you today the same Jesus that David prophesied, one who suffered and died on the cross, rose again, resurrection and ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit that you see today are all witness that Jesus is this Lord as promised by, uh, uh, by Psalm 110. Really explains that outpouring of the Spirit at that point, that this was, in a sense, the, the focal point of history coming to fruition. That the promised Christ would rise from the dead, proving that he is the Messiah, and ascending to heaven to rule, proving that he is the Lord of all things. And that's the point that Peter is making, that David spoke of this. That there was one that was greater than David that would come, for David was just a man. He died, his tomb is with us to to this day. But he by the Spirit of God, spoke of the one to come, the Messianic King, Jesus Christ. David says, he is my Lord. He is my Lord. And in so saying, he invites you to follow him, even as David did. And we'll find that David does so with faithfulness and imperfectly, and he will lead us by his example, lead us by the hand to hope for the one who is greater than David, to place our trust not in David or in human rulers, but in the Savior Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter does. In a sense, Peter offers the gospel. Not in a sense, he really literally does. Offer the gospel, a free offer of the gospel. As the people who were there heard this message, it says they were cut to the heart by Peter's message. They asked, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter answers, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. On that day, 3,000 were added to the church. And with all earnestness, I set the same truth before you today. This is not just an introduction to prime you for what is to come. This is for you today. Lord Jesus Christ is the only King and only Savior. He is the only one that can answer the shame of your sin. He is the only one who can take away the curse that follows you every day. He is the only one that can give you the hope of everlasting life. You hear that message today and are cut to the heart. You need to ask that very same question, what must I do? And the answer is the same, to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, to repent of your sins, to come to him as your King and your Savior. The promise is that if you do, that the Lord Jesus Christ takes you as his child. And he gives you everlasting life that no one can ever take away. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an invitation. And more than an invitation, it's an urgent exhortation to you. But there is no other way for you to be saved. You must repent. You must believe on the one who is greater than David. Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord our God, we pray that you would save us from our sins. Through the risen and ascended Savior, Jesus Christ. We come before you, the one who is enthroned from of old, one who has promised throughout uh, all of our history and promised even before the foundation of the world that you would save sinners. Lord, I pray that we would learn from David that the Lord has said to my Lord, sit and rule and reign, and that the Holy One has been risen from the, raised from the dead, our Savior Jesus Christ. First fruits from the dead, giving us hope. Father, today we bow and worship our great King, Jesus Christ. His name we pray. Amen. Saying Psalm 16 earlier, let's now sing Psalm 110. These words of David about Jesus. They are our words as well. For Jesus is our Lord and Savior too. Let's stand and sing Psalm 110, Selection B.